Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me, my co-host extraordinaire over there. That's me. How are you doing, Darcy? Doing okay. Thanksgiving was wild times, very busy, work-wise, and then, yeah, uh, getting everything together, but I cooked a whole turkey. What? Uh, Yeah, I found out, like, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving that I was in charge of cooking all of the Thanksgiving meal. Wow. yeah, Darcy, who was, I had no idea you were so domesticated. Honestly, I'm really not. I mean, I can cook. I just don't cook that often. And I very rarely cook, like, enough food for eight people because why would I? That's insane. So it was a whole thing, yeah. Good for you, though. Were there, anyway. were there lots of leftovers? Well, there were, and then I made my family take them because I was like, I don't want any of this in my house. That's the best part about Thanksgiving I, Well, leftovers. I kept enough for, like, a, like a sandwich, lunch the right? next day. A turkey sandwich. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's pretty much it. Well, I cut the apple pie, of course. Yeah. Well, I didn't have any leftovers. That's the biggest bummer about Thanksgiving yeah. for me because we ate at the Palmer Hotel. They had mm. a, a sit-down. Well, it wasn't, it was like a two-course um, that you could buy a Thanksgiving plate. And it was just turkey oh, with one little scoop of mashed potatoes, some asparagus, some Brussels sprouts, a little bit of cranberry sauce on the turkey, and that was it. And then you get a, pump, a piece of pumpkin cheesecake for dessert. Which, oh, that is very much unlike a Southern Thanksgiving. It was delicious, but at the same time, I wanted like 10 times more mashed potatoes because the scoop was so tiny. Yeah. And like, there was no leftovers. So it was, yeah. it was a major bummer. You, so you didn't have any dressing or stuffing? No. Wasn't served oh. with it. It had the, I guess it was real ultra modern because the Brussels sprouts had fr- dried fruit and... Um, what is that? Pig, the pork, pork belly. Ew. Rendered pork belly and dried fruit with it. So it was nope. like, it was See, a I like Brussels sprouts, but then you put pork on it and I'm, I'm out. It was a weird thing. The Brussels sprouts yeah. themselves, like I took everything off and just ate the Brussels sprouts. Um, it was. I like Brussels. The taste was good, but like the hotel, and I just have so much empathy for people in the service industry. The hotel was short, extremely short oh, of staff. Yeah. It took us, we were there for four hours <laughs> to eat dinner, and we had three yeah. drinks. Three drinks wow. and dinner over four hours. That's how long it took because we initially got there, and it's like a lobby area with tables, and, and there's a bar in the middle of the lobby, mm-hmm. and there's probably 20 tables, and it was kind of first come, first serve no reservations kind of a thing and so we got there and i think we got there around five and a family was leaving so i quickly swooped in and grabbed their table but it took 45 minutes for someone to come clear the table off and i was like hey listen just give me a tub i'll clear it off for you like let me help you and they wouldn't let us so um they finally came and cleaned that off and then it took another hour over an hour to get the food mm. and then it took another hour to get the dessert and then it took another hour to get the last round of drinks wow. and in the meantime mike gets up and goes to the drugstore and gets a couple bottles of wine and <laughs> like does all the shopping goes checks in gets us into our room and like he's doing all this stuff as, and then yeah. comes down and gets a drink in between running all these errands so it was really funny it's, man i can't imagine having to like work on a holiday like that either too you know yeah so anyway that was my one bad experience at that place other other than that i loved it anyway story for the day um this article came out i thought this was interesting 
Virginia criminal couponer robbed $31.8 million used funds for high-end vacations. A okay, criminal wait, wait. couponer. I need all the of details, the details, right? On that. This article came out in, in late October. A Virginia beach woman sold $31.8 million worth of counterfeit coupons to shoppers. How? She used the money to pay for high-end home renovations and vacations, according to new information released by the FBI. Lori Ann Talens, 41, was sentenced to 12 years in prison last month after pleading guilty to mail, wire, and health care fraud. Her husband, Pacifico Talens Jr., 43, was sentenced to more than seven years in prison for his role in supporting the scheme. According to the FBI, Talons used the profits to buy high-end home renovations, including an in-ground swimming pool, a new sunroom, and a new kitchen. Her family also enjoyed eating out, shopping, and high-end vacations at a deep discount. She was dubbed the criminal couponer by the FBI. She used her graphic design skills to manipulate barcodes for coupons at nearly any store in the country. In total, oh she collected $400,000 over three years for shoppers who used the coupons, and she also used the coupons to help finance a lavish lifestyle. In her home, FBI agents found about a million dollars worth of counterfeit coupons, rolls of coupon paper, and coupon designs for more than 13,000 products on her computer. There were coupons in every jacket pocket. They were stuffed in her vehicles, said postal inspectors. She used Facebook and Telegram to find coupon users, was able to avoid authorities by using encrypted communication services to deal with her customers, and by using cryptocurrencies for payments. If the coupons are rejected, if they're counterfeit, then the retailer doesn't get paid back for them. But that whole process takes a lot of time. So by the time a coupon gets identified as being fraudulent or fake, that coupon has already been used by who knows how many times. Yeah. In the scheme, Talons used the online name MasterChef and made counterfeit vouchers that were virtually indistinguishable from authentic coupons and were often created with inflated values, far in excess of what an authentic coupon could offer. In order to receive items from retail for free or for greatly reduced prices, according to the Justice Department, Talons shipped the counterfeit coupons using the U.S. Postal Service and accepted payments through online payment methods like Bitcoin and PayPal. Her husband assisted in shipping counterfeit coupons and profited from the sales. The scheme unraveled when one of her customers reported them that the excuse me the scheme unraveled when one of their customers reported them to the Coupon Information Center, which is a coalition dedicated to coupon integrity. The coupon center what? <laughs> the coupon center acted as her customer, purchased coupons and later confirmed they were counterfeit. The coupon center then notified the US Postal Inspection Service, which investigated the case. In addition to the fraudulent coupon ring, Talons defrauded Medicaid and the supplemental nutrition supplemental nutrition assistance program out of forty three thousand dollars over five years by failing to report Good her God. husband's employment income when applying. This woman is oh awful. She's a demon. How long did this go on? Years and years. years yeah, had to have. Can you imagine? No. And <laughs> no one thought anything of this woman with this lavish. Like, they just thought like she was an extreme coupon. Right. Like what was? She, I wonder what she was telling them she was doing for work. But she got twelve years in prison. But she pled guilty to mail and wire fraud and healthcare fraud. Yikes! But can you imagine over coupons? Coupons. Who knew you could make that much money with some coupons? I had no idea, dude. Anyway, 
Um, main case for the day. Let's talk about Amber Dubois and Chelsea King. And the reason that I'm talking about them is because we did kind of briefly mention them in an earlier case that we talked about. Um, Amber Dubois' mom. Um, she is she helps with search and rescue type of things, and she works with mm -hmm. dogs, cadaver dogs. So mm -hmm. anyway, February 12th, 2009, north of San Diego, Escondido to be exact, Amber Dubois had negotiated for a baby lamb. And this is where I used to live. She was right down the street, literally from where Mike and I lived when we were in Escondido. Um, this 14-year-old loved animals, and it was Friday the 13th, and she was supposed to finally get her little baby lamb. Her mom had given her a check for $200, and she was going to purchase that lamb from the Future Farmers of America. Okay. They had programs where students could buy and raise animals. Um, and this was common in a lot of places. I remember they had this when I was in school. And particularly because I grew up in Snohomish, in pretty much deep country, the FFA, or the Future Farmers of America, was really big. And there were goats and sheep and cows and pigs, and they could raise them on a little farm on school grounds. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I am and a they city this mouse. In Escondido. That is not at all... But this is like out there where this is yeah. is like real kind of deep country. Like yeah. we had a horse farm across the street from our housing complex. So like there was just a, there's a lot of animals, a lot of farms, yeah. a lot of kind of larger pieces of property where they raise farm animals. And Amber was a cute kid and kind of free spirited and she liked reading and writing and the outdoors and animals and she wasn't into a lot more of the kind of girly surface stuff like clothes and hair and all that kind of stuff. She liked Harry Potter. And she loved reading. Mm -hmm. And she would often read well into the night. She was actually a freshman in high school at the time. And she'd been making plans to take extra classes so she could graduate ahead of her classmates. Um, one thing that was really, really important to her was that she wanted to have perfect attendance. So she hated missing classes because she wanted that perfect attendance. God. And I remember Not me, dude. being like that. I remember being like that when I was younger. And then really? when I got into like sophomore, junior, senior, I was like, eh. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I, skipping that school. Was never I'm going a shopping. Of mine. Yeah, no, I had my mom's signature down to a. Oh, see, I never did that. <laughs> I'm not a rule breaker. I wrote, yeah, I wrote fake letters to myself. <gasps> I know I'm a bad kid. You are a bad kid. Yeah. Anyway, Amber wanted to study animal behavior and be a scientist. Nice. She had guinea pigs, fish, birds, dogs, rats. She loved horses. Um, she started riding at the age of three and got her own horse by the age of nine. So, like, this kid is yeah. really, really, like, animal-oriented, which is awesome. Because um, she wanted to study animal behavioral science. So, yeah. in Escondido, the FFA had a huge farm on campus, and they let their students purchase farm animals so they could raise them as part of the farming experience. And Amber was set to walk to school on February the 13th with her $200 check. And it was around 50 degrees outside and kind of drizzling and unusually kind of chilly mm -hmm. for that area. And Amber's parents noticed that she's not home when she's supposed to be on Friday. Okay. And they call her cell phone, and there's no answer. So they drive to the school, and they find out that the teachers had not seen her all day. She'd never showed up for school that day. And they just didn't bother, like, calling home or anything? I guess not. Maybe they didn't do that. That was a thing, but like, when I was in school, like, if you missed school, the school called you at home to make sure, like, you were, 
like at home sick or, or, or they made sure your parents knew you weren't in school basically right this is 2009 I don't know I mean maybe they called home to like a house phone this was her father right. that was like checking in on her so maybe they had called the mom and she just hadn't communicated I don't know huh. um, but in any case they she'd never showed up and they were really surprised because she never missed school yeah. so they knew somebody had to have taken her Normally, Amber got out of school around 2.45 and walked home. So she was usually, you know, home around 3.30. She was very dependable and predictable, and she never worried her parents unnecessarily. Yeah. And she would always call when she got home. That was until February 2009. Amber's parents searched the school grounds, and they made um, flyers, and they searched for her everywhere. They went door-to-door -door with pictures. And Escondido police went to work searching as well, including all the nearby areas. And in that area, it's really like there's a lot of like canyons and hills and like sort of non-populated mm -hmm. areas where there's like trails and lots of like heavily wooded and bushy kind of areas with a lot of like really sharp kind of scraggly bushes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So they're like searching all those areas to try to find little Amber. Somebody actually, well, a couple people reported that they'd seen Amber out and about and one said they saw her with a taller boy who was kind of doughy and dark complected quote unquote doughy is a really rough way to describe somebody that's chunky right yes <laughs> and i feel like you could describe me as doughy right now and i don't love i that. feel like i'm <laughs> i'm totally doughy <laughs> i don't love I am that doughy af yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway um amber's cell phone pings off a cell phone tower um when someone tried to check voicemail on it. Okay. Um, this was near Amber's school. So then an alert goes out, and it goes to all the cell phones in the area about Amber being a missing child. So it was not an Amber alert. This is the, a different kind of a system mm -hmm. that gives an emergency text notification when people are missing to cell phones. Mm -hmm. um, no surveillance cameras saw Amber anywhere, which is unusual. Yeah. When you think about how many cameras there are everywhere now, but then you look at Escondido and it's it's pretty rural. Yeah. Um, and so there there aren't there just aren't a lot of cameras there. Um, so FBI joins the search and they're looking through miles of ravines and trails and mountains, but there's no sign of Amber. Her parents are understandably devastated. Hundreds of volunteers are out there looking for Amber. America's Most Wanted covered her story, and she was featured on the cover of People magazine. I don't know if you remember that. I actually don't, but I wanted to um, discuss because, just real quick, the difference between a missing child alert and an Amber Alert is an Amber Alert is sent out when there is um, evidence that the child has actually been abducted. Right. So that they don't know what happened to Amber. They right. Think, you know, I think with teenagers, they think, oh, maybe they just took off or ran away or right. whatever. So. Yeah. It, if there's not, if they don't know if a child has been abducted or not, it's a missing persons alert. But and they put that out on the cell phone. Yeah, and so. specifically an Amber alert is an is abduction. I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah. Yeah. So um, tips start pouring in, but none of them. There are over twelve hundred of them. None of them actually pan out. And they interview over 500 people at that time to wow. no avail. Um, Amber's mom was actually making trips down to Mexico to chase down tips. Yeah. She went down there four or five times. The police told her you shouldn't do that. It's really dangerous, it especially dangerous. if they know that you have money. They're going to try to scam you. Yep. But she didn't care. Scam you or worse. She, 
Yeah, or kill you yeah. um, and take your money. But her mom also got a list of registered sex offenders and mm -hmm. went to check on them one by one. Like, she wow. was outside their apartments. Like, she was legit, like, I'm doing everything I can to find my kid. Wow. And good on her because... That's also that's, dangerous, too, though. It's a lot of work, right? Um, months pass, and the volunteers begin thinning out. Mm -hmm. uh, months pass as the volunteers thin out. And the volunteer search center closes a year after Amber vanishes, and there's still no sign of her. Mm. Then, a 17-year-old girl named Chelsea King vanishes. It's Thursday, February 25th, 2010, and Chelsea vanishes from a suburb of San Diego just about 10 miles from Escondido in Rancho Bernardo, which yep. I also lived in Rancho Bernardo right down the street from where this happened before we moved to Escondido, which is crazy. Um, she'd gone on a popular hiking trail to go for a run. She was mm -hmm. going to do this quick little five-mile run after school. She was a straight-A student. She was all set to attend college after she graduated. She was an avid runner. And she'd gone to Rancho Bernardo Park uh, for a five-mile run in the evening. And she did this frequently, so it was not unusual to see her on the trails there. Um, it's well-known, and there are a lot of people that file through there on a daily basis. So the trail is, it's not like, it's not isolated per se. I mean, parts of it are, but like those trails, you, you see people periodically. Yeah. So I think you tend to feel a little bit safer. The trail kind of abuts the side of a lake over there as well. Okay. So it's just, it's a really pretty run. And it's just, it's an area where, and I've been on this trail. It's an area where you don't necessarily feel unsafe. It's deceptive. Um, but when Chelsea didn't come home, and she was not answering her cell phone. Her parents check on her and they find her phone inside of her locked car at the trailhead in the parking lot of Rancho Bernardo Park. And this is strange um, and immediately worried everyone who knew Chelsea because basically she, again, she's a responsible young lady. She's pretty much a, a creature of habit as well. So they put this announcement out immediately to be on the lookout for a woman with strawberry blonde hair who's petite. She's around 5'5 and about 115 pounds and light-complected. And Amber's mom hears about this as well and feels something kind of in her gut. Oh, like the two cases have to be connected, which That's can awful. you imagine how awful that would be? Um, they send searchers out to the trail and basically... At first, they don't find anything, but then after a, a, a little bit of time goes by, they find underwear and socks in the center of the trail. Oh, God. And they match Chelsea King's. There was blood found on them as well, and they were immediately sent to the lab for testing. In the meantime, though, teams start searching Rancho Bernardo Parks in large numbers. My guy now was actually part of the search. Really? When he first showed up to San Diego. Holy cow. Yeah. Um, he, he said there were so many people out there looking for him. It, they were turning people away because they had too many people. I went to a search. Like, there was a woman that went missing um, south of Birmingham. My dad and I went to a search, um, and they were turning people away. Um, but they actually yeah. they found her. She was alive in the woods. Like, her car had broken down. Um, but anyway. Yeah. But, I mean, I, it's funny because you wouldn't think that there would be too many searchers. But, like, you have to be able to maintain a level of organization. Yeah. If you get too many people out there, then it's it's pointless because right. you lose track of what areas have already been searched, and it has to be very well organized yeah. in order to, they to do like get a, that. Like, they do a grid thing, and, like, they have to, you yeah. know, like, they, in my experience, when I went to the search, they were sending people out in groups. My group 
didn't go out they found her by the time we were getting ready to go out but but yeah i was yeah. very well organized well and polly class mm -hmm. a young woman a young girl that was murdered prior to this um her father was the one that helped sort of um create this plan for a search plan a method of searching like a methodical way of searching mm -hmm. for missing persons and we'll talk about that in a later yeah. episode but um Anyway, they start searching the lake and the water and the brush and everything around that area to try to find more signs of little Chelsea, of Miss Chelsea, sorry. But it's dense and there's lots of land to hide in. Um, Friday, February 26, 2010, dogs, trucks, four-wheelers, and just anyone that they could grab were out there searching. There were hundreds of volunteers searching and 25 FBI, 25 FBI agents, Border Patrol, everybody was getting involved and canvassing local neighborhoods, checking with known registered sex offenders, and Amber's parents were searching as well, mm -hmm. which is interesting because you've got to know that they're thinking it's linked. Right. You've got two you know, relatively young, similar-looking young ladies disappearing from 10 miles yeah. apart. You, it, it had to you hope it's not, but you just have a gut feeling. Yeah, and I don't think I was in San Diego yet at that time. I think I, I came to San Diego. Nope, I take that back. I came to San Diego in 2004. I was there, and I don't remember any of this. This was, I came out in 2011, so this is before my time out there. Yeah, I was in San Diego in 2004, and I was living in Mira Mesa at the time, which is... Mm -hmm probably about it's like 20 the middle minutes of the map of san diego yeah it's about 20 minutes from where this was but at the time i don't believe we had cable so we weren't watching like the local news right. and things like that so uh, i think that my significant other now um he remembers it because they he was a regular you know an avid news consumer yeah but I don't remember this. I remember the some of the search stuff coming up later, but I don't remember it when it was actually happening. Um, in any case, um, everyone thought this had to be foul play, especially since they'd found clothing a mm -hmm. few miles from Chelsea's car. And a shoe was discovered not long after in a location where the socks were found. Mm -hmm. And it matched Chelsea's shoes. So then they know, you know, she's not going to be out there running around without her shoes. Yeah. Something bad had to have happened. Now Chelsea and Amber were both missing from quiet little San Diego suburbs where no one thought anything bad could ever happen. And if you go to these areas, they're so quiet. They're so peaceful. People are so friendly. Yeah. I ran many, 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 many times by myself with my dog there and never felt even a twinge of fear. Yeah. So it's it's deceptively well, safe looking. Well, and even in the areas in San Diego where I lived, it was the same thing. I mean, it's just, you just feel secure there and there's not really a reason that you can point to to why like you know what I mean some of the areas I lived in were like they were nice but they weren't like you know they were still yeah. like it was like still like Chula Vista and stuff like that so like yeah you know anyway so three days after Chelsea vanishes more clothing is found another shoe and a sports bra and police are starting to believe at that point that the articles of clothing are being randomly discarded since the areas had already right. been checked and nothing showed up the first time they'd been checked or the second so time. So somebody's going back over the search area. Yeah. And, yeah. That's what they, they start to believe at that point. Mm -hmm. um, then a student home for the holidays had been running uh, on a trail near where Chelsea had been, where Chelsea's items had been found. Um, and this had happened December 2009. 
and it's a few months before Chelsea had vanished within a few feet of houses. Somebody had grabbed her and attempted to assault her. This is, right, this is before Chelsea went missing? This happened in 2009 before Chelsea went okay. missing, but she didn't report it. Oh, okay. She comes forward once she hears about this because she's concerned that maybe this person who did this to her mm -hmm. might be somehow involved. But she goes to the police and tells them that the perpetrator was white, stocky, muscular, with brown hair and a military-type haircut. I mean, that's one in a million in San Diego, isn't it? Seriously, because there's a huge military base it's, right there. It's like a couple five miles of them. Up the road, yeah. There's a Marine base yeah. um, not too far from Rancho Bernardo. But evidently, as she ran, a man tackled her from the side and pinned her down. She fought him off by hitting him with her elbow, and she escaped by running away. So she had some karate Good or taekwondo her. or yeah. something of that nature, some kind of background in that, and she fought and was able to fight him off. Witnesses saw a heavyset white male in the area at the same time as well. February 28th, Sunday, the DNA on the clothing is confirmed to be Chelsea's. Ugh. But there was also a second person's DNA on the clothing. And it came back as a match to a registered sex offender. Okay. And they have a name and a prison number for this registered sex offender. The match came back to a man by the name of John Gardner. He'd spent five years in jail for sexual assault back in the year 2000. So police immediately start searching for this John Gardner guy. Undercover police officers actually go hunt for him, hoping that Chelsea is still alive at that point because they don't, they don't have enough blood to really, right. you know, know that she's completely, you know, gone. And they just have her clothes, so they don't really have anything to go on at that point. Right. But they, they locate John at a bar at the lake near where Chelsea had disappeared. Okay. Which is interesting, where she'd been running. It's called Hernandez Hideaway. The bar and, is? Yeah. Okay. And weirdly enough, his clothing is, like, all wet and muddy when they find him. Ew. And this is, like, this is... February in San Diego, it's kind of cold then. Right. Like, you're not going to be running around out wet and muddy I mean, it's out there. cold relative to, like... Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, for, for that yeah. area, yeah, it's cold. Um, they take him in, and they show pictures of him to the previous uh, victim, mm -hmm. and she identified him right away oh, really? as her attacker. So 30-year-old John Gardner was pissed to be taken in and claimed that all of the accusations were false, which I think... It happens very sure. often. The police question him over and over, and the whole time he keeps denying any connection to this. But he's super suspicious because he keeps ranging from like this disbelief to claiming he's been treated badly by previous meetings with law enforcement, so he hates cops. He claims he'd slipped in the mud and hopped into the lake to rinse off what? in Lake Hodges. That's not a thing. Yeah, no, you don't slip in the mud and then go rinse off in the yeah, lake. You don't, yeah, you don't. Yeah, that doesn't make you less muddy. That makes Stupid. you more muddy. Seriously. <laughs> and they're like, "Where's Chelsea? Where's Chelsea?" And Gardner won't say a word. Then all of a sudden, he surprises them by bringing up Amber's name. Oh God! And says, "Oh, you're probably going to try to pin that one on me too," and starts laughing maniacally. Um. So yeah, a little bit creepy. Um. When the police dig into John's history, they discover that 10 years previous, a psychologist had found that he was a danger to the public. So this was at the time that he was tried for that case with the assault on a young girl. Mm -hmm. 
and they had actually, as part of the case, had him evaluated by a court-appointed psychologist to try to determine his sentencing, and they said that he was a danger to the public. I'm going to get a little bit more into that um, in just a second. But Sunday, February 28, 2010, Chelsea, Chelsea is still missing, but the parents are relieved that a perpetrator is in custody. Mm-hmm. So he'd been um, in jail for, well, he'd been sentenced initially to six years for sexual assault, for the brutal beating and assault on a 13-year-old neighbor. He'd only served five years of his sentence, but it happened in March 20 or March 2000. He was 20 years old, and he'd invited the 13-year-old neighbor over, at which time he started groping her, and when she begged him to stop, he beat her up. She was literally so traumatized by the attack that her family had to move out of the area to kind of get away. God. But Gardner denied everything about the attack. He said it was the girl's mother that hurt her, and Gardner had grown up in the San Bernardino Mountains about 100 miles away from where he was now in San Diego. But he claimed that this um, girl had a boyfriend and didn't want to get in trouble with her parents, so she blamed him, the neighbor, and that her mom found out that she was sexually active with this neighbor and beat her up because of it. So... John's schoolmates back in San Bernardino claimed he was a good friend, that he was helpful and loyal, but that he had issues with bipolar disorder, and that he had claimed he'd been molested as a child. Okay. And then 1998 was when his mother moved him to San Diego, and they started fresh. He ended up getting a job at a sporting goods store and wanted to be a math teacher. But that dream ended when he got arrested and convicted of assaulting that young girl yeah general rule of thumb they shouldn't let you around kids if you've been already mm, convicted not of that. so much right yeah um but he always claimed he was innocent and he ple- he said he pled guilty to avoid getting more jail time i know um, it's before, on his record so exactly before that the court ordered psychiatrists examined him for prison or probation because they were trying to determine what an appropriate sentence would be for him and before the trial wait i already said that they warned of future violence and escalated criminal actions, especially to underage girls. The idea that probation they, was even on the table. Well, they said treatment wouldn't help. Well, one of the psychologists said this, that treatment wouldn't help, and they warned the probation officer with a call, with a follow-up call afterwards. Wow. But unfortunately, there were several psychiatrists that examined this guy, and the other one was like, oh, he's fine. Even so, they let this guy have a lighter sentence of six years. This was kind of a mid-range sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sentence wasn't heavier because of the circumstances, um, because he also had no criminal history. You know, he was repentant, mm-hmm. etc. The other psychologist report said John was treatable and that he had glowing character references, an ex-girlfriend who was willing to come to his aid and say nice things about him. And because he was only 20 years old and he had no prior record, mm-hmm. they basically said, yeah, you're, you're, you have a low... Um, Recidivism. God. The law presumes that he can be fixed, and so they gave him a mid-year sentence or a mid-level sentence. We talk about this when we talk about, like, old cases that happened in, like, the 70s and 80s and how we didn't understand. This was 2000. Right, like, that we didn't (laughs) understand that, like, that's not a crime that, like, that's not, like, an urge that you can be, like, clear, like, you know what I mean? Like, you can't be fixed from that. Like, you always will have that, and you're likely to commit the same crime over and over again. That like 2000 that we, we still didn't do anything yeah, about Yeah, but it's this. wild that you have two so um, 
diametrically opposed like viewpoints on what this guy is about. I'm not gonna lie. Like, to one you. is like, he's safe, he's good, he has glowing references. Let's let him go. And the other one's like, no, no, you have to keep this guy locked up forever. Yeah. Like, don't let him out. Like, those are so opposite that it's just it's wild. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie to you, especially now that I'm doing the work that I'm doing. You can buy a consultant, which sucks. Yeah. But like, you can basically well, pay somebody for the opinion you want. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, though, the police continue to search for Chelsea, hoping to find her alive. But by that point, police conclusively believe that Amber and Chelsea cases are both connected. Tuesday, March 2nd, 2010, Chelsea has been gone for five days at that point. And I think I do remember the, the vigils for Chelsea. And I remember thinking at the time, I think I had recalled that I thought a boyfriend had to be involved in some way, shape, or form, some, one of her boyfriends or something. Yeah. Amber and Chelsea's families met March 2nd, 2010. Um, they were very supportive of one another, but the searchers haven't found either one, so they keep looking around Lake Hodges mm -hmm. and the shoreline where Chelsea's shoes had been found, so they're, they're determined that, excuse me, that they're going to find more there. Then all the pagers go off at once. Divers found Chelsea near the shore in a shallow grave. So they found her. March 2nd, 2010. Amber Dubois' family then learned about Chelsea and felt panic. Because they're like, this is definitive proof that whoever did this killed her. Yeah. And we know our, these cases are linked, so there's a very high likelihood that something bad has happened to our Amber. John was charged with Chelsea's death at that point and the assault on the previously attacked jogger that came forward after Chelsea disappeared. Mm. John had been staying close to the park with his mother at the time of Chelsea's disappearance. Gardner had been registered in Lake Elsinore with his grandmother as a sex offender. Okay. So he shouldn't have been staying with his mom. This was also the same location where he'd attacked the 13-year-old. This is a really kind of a tricky situation because anytime a sex offender moves, they have to report right. that to the parole board, and he didn't do that. So another um, reason he shouldn't be out free yeah. that's a probation yeah. violation well somebody i guess spray painted on john's john's mother's house chelsea's blood is on you move out and they really kind of harassed the mother right which that's not I right mean, it's not right but at the same time it's like you knew your son was or maybe she didn't know i don't know maybe she just wasn't aware of what the rules were and couldn't tell him hey i mean do it's the right hard thing. to know like i i can't put anything on the mother like he's an adult he had been convicted of a crime. It's his responsibility to to report. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not saying that anything that happened to her was no, justified. No, no, no. But, just but there was a lot of really... Updating his probation officer. There were a lot of really angry people. Sure. That wanted bad things to happen to him and his family. Yeah. So um, that was kind of an unfortunate little thing. I mean, yeah, you want bad things to happen to someone who murders someone, but you, his mother right. is really sad. Anyway, um, police dig into Amber's case, too, and they need to find her, and they believe John's connected. John had been living in Escondido in 2009 when Amber disappeared. And the only other thing they noted was that John had a three-year-old girl in the car with him when a, woman called, when a woman called to report he'd been following her. Oh, my God. And this was a no-no as a registered sex offender. He's not supposed to have any contact with children. He's in the car with a three-year-old. Oh, my home. God. And evidently, this like whole thing was he'd been following this girl. He and they asked him, "Why are you following her?" And he said, "Oh, she cut me off, and I was mad, or whatever." But police then are like, "Nope, we're checking into yeah. this. We have to look at all this. Why do you have this kid in the car?" And they find out his girlfriend—it's a child that belongs to his girlfriend, okay. his current girlfriend—and they re-interview witnesses. 
and a tip comes in from Escondido, but this ended up being a dead end. Amber had been seen with that chubby, dark-haired guy, and they really think this disappearance has something to do with this chubby, dark-haired guy. In the meantime, though, Gardner is leading police down a dirt road outside of San Diego. He offered a deal. He was going to lead police to Amber's body, but only if they couldn't use it against him in criminal proceedings. Uh... I think they call it king for a day or something like that. Um, that, that sort of a, a, a deal. Um, they couldn't question him about the murder. He would just show them where the body was. So undercover SWAT teams follow the car as they're taking him out to this area where Amber's body is supposedly at. And he leads them 20 miles from Escondido past an Indian reservation where he, dis where he disposed of Amber's body. She'd been buried in a shallow grave in 2009 in a hillside in the middle of nowhere. Her remains were found, and the medical examiner made a positive ID within 24 mm. hours. And that's when they notified Amber's family. So they were devastated but relieved to finally bring their Amber home. And, but now the police need to find evidence on their own to convict John Gardner of murdering Amber since they can't use his directions to the body. So they made that deal with him. They did. Okay. Because, and they made that decision because they thought that it was much more important for them to find that body yeah. so the family could have closure, which, and again, that's very controversial to a lot of different yeah. people when they allow those king for day type of deals um, with regard to crimes, especially murder. Um, but I think that a good police officer and a good police force can find other evidence. Right. And in if cases the like family that. is okay, like if that's a decision the family makes too, you know what I mean? I don't know that they consulted. Oh, I feel like they should. I, mean, I don't know that. I don't believe that they did because when they found the the body and they they let the family know, I think they'd already had all this oh. in place. Mm. Yeah, I feel like um, they, they should consult. Uh, police searched four vehicles and forensically examined them that were related to John Gardner. Um, Amber's family hadn't been told any links to John Gardner or that he'd led the police to the body. Oh. They just knew that the body had been found. Oh, God. Yeah, which is just horrific. Amber's mother, Carrie, was obsessed, though. She needed to know what happened to her daughter, which I would freaking want to know, too. Yeah. Then, April 15, 2010, Amber's family learns about John Gardner and the deal the police had made, which mm. I think I'd be pretty upset. Yes, in hindsight, to learn they made that deal, yes. In any case... John Gardner's attorney wants John to plead guilty to all the charges, forego any appeals. Death penalty has to be off the table, though. He will get life in prison, no parole, no death penalty. April 16, 2010, news stations okay. play Gardner admitting to Chelsea's murder. They play that footage. And he also admits to attacking the runner and admits to murdering Amber and Paula. So they kind of made a deal with him, mm. right? He made the deal with them to lead him to the body if they would take the death penalty off the table. But then they make the deal with him. No death penalty, mm -hmm. but you get life in prison if you plead guilty to all of these crimes. And he does admit to murdering Amber and right. Paula. He said he'd killed her within about an hour and a half of grabbing her. The Dubois family agrees to no mm -hmm. death penalty to get him to admit the guilt because they don't want to go through a big, long, extensive trial, which I totally get. Um, but that wasn't all. Amber's yeah. mom, Carrie, wants to meet with Gardner and find out why he killed Amber. Right? Um, in May 20... Oh, gosh. 
in May 2010, Carrie tries to schedule a okay, visit, no, and she did. gets told that there she's there's no slots available because I guess they have limited number of visitation. And I think you that, can like put people on the list, and if they're not on the list, yes. you don't get to go. Yes. So she's trying to find a way to get in yeah. there and visit, and is told you can't. So she decides she's going to go to his mother and ask if his mother can do something for her. And she kind of confronts this woman outside of the jail. And, the, and basically, John Gardner's mother was like, uh-uh, get away from me. Don't touch me. Like, I don't want anything. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to have anything to do yeah. with you. But then the next day, the jail contacts Amber's mom and says she can come visit. Hmm. So maybe she did the right thing and helped make that visit happen. Yeah. I, I'd like to think she, she did. So Carrie McGonigal, who's Amber Dubois' mom, sits down with John Gardner and she asks him what happened and he said that he'd gotten into a fight with his girlfriend and left in her car to blow off steam that as he'd been driving he drove past Amber and she wasn't on her usual way to school her mom suspects that she had a girlfriend that lived nearby and she'd gone there first to visit to kind of talk about the, sh the lamb uh -huh. and the money and how excited she was but Gardner had grabbed her and told her to get into the car. He threatened her with a knife and a gun. He actually told Amber's mom the route he went and how he had raped her and killed her. By the end of the interview, he is basically just bawling and hysterical, which, good. Deserve to relive it and think about it and, and really think about it for the rest of your damn life. Yeah. Uh, but Amber's mom just gets up and walks away. She says she felt relieved that she felt no emotion anymore, that she had gained her power back mm -hmm. and she was ready to kind of make headway and, and live her life to, to honor Amber's memory. Um, the trial was very abbreviated because of the plea bargaining. Um, the only thing left was the sentencing. Interestingly enough, though, Gardner was wearing a GPS monitor until 2008, just, just four oh. months before Amber was killed. God. So... They look at this GPS monitor afterwards and discover over a hundred different parole violations near schools, parks, daycare centers, etc. And evidently, no one knew. So this just wasn't no being one, monitored. No one was monitoring. So they it just or thought, like, him. the fact that he was wearing it would scare him into not doing yeah, anything. Basically, Jesus. So deaths could have been prevented, according to the um, parole investigators. Um, he had been classified as a medium low risk, which was not uh -uh. Good either, and so. As a medium low risk, there was no need to monitor his GPS. It was only recorded for possible later use if it was needed. Like that's the kind of which is like that will get awful. chalked up as like a clerical clerical error. Yeah, but that was the way it was. Everyone, not just him. I know, if but you're like, a low to medium risk, they only use it if it's needed later. But I'm saying like and this was for him to have been classified as a medium low risk. Yes, that's a clerical. Yes. That will go down as a clerical error that resulted in two deaths. But it's not a clerical error. That was the way the law operated. Oh, my God. You have to look at the, the total circumstances. You have to look at the history of the perpetrator. You have to look at if they have a prior history. You have to look at the... Everything has to weigh so like, in on the decision to make All the things this. that went into his getting, like, the lighter sentence of six years are the same things that weighed into him getting the medium-low risk designation. Exactly. Oh, my God. Okay. So, obviously, you know, when we're looking at this now, we see it as a colossal failure, um, but again, this is this was the sentencing guidelines at the time, because they had to look at the number of offenses and et cetera, Ugh. and the history and and his you know glowing character reference et cetera. Um, but the sentencing was very emotional for the families, and I think that they've managed to quite gracefully deal with this, considering um, how awful and terrible yeah. and horrific it is. 
But Amber's mom now does search and rescue efforts and works with cadaver dogs and things like that to help find more missing kids. So she's really paid it forward yeah. in attempts to help other people in her same situation. And Chelsea's parents pushed for new laws for sex offenders. They increased monitoring, assessment, um, stiffer sentences, etc. And they got that bill signed into law in 2010. So obviously there have been some changes since this whole thing went into play um, as far as how the justice system handles men like John Gardner. Um, and a lesson was learned from this. Yeah, it was a very, very painful, awful, horrific lesson. But right. I think that in many ways our justice system has to learn from things like this because this is certainly not the first time something like that happened, right? Yeah. I mean, we had other cases. Wasn't the J.C. Dugard? The guy was on parole then, too. Yep. I mean, and with the Amber Alert case. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. So it's um, pretty horrific that two young women with so much promise and so just, you know, such amazing things ahead of them in life had their lives ended by this guy. And he just has continually refused to accept responsibility and has just, ugh, the whole thing is just gross. Yeah. But um, anything else you want to add before we wrap this case up for I the day? I don't. That's awful. It just sucks that, like, you see all these things in hindsight and it just sucks. Like, yeah. And there's no other way um, to put it. It just is awful. But even if they had given him the maximum sentence, I mean, he still could have gone out and done damage afterwards right but if they had then been monitoring his gps like actively monitoring yeah you know what i mean like he could have been picked up they would have seen a pattern of behavior it's very sad and i, I i've always been interested in these cases just because i lived right there yeah like it's in my it was in my backyard yeah i didn't live there at the time but i lived there later and I remember my guy, my current guy, telling me about, you know, participating in the search at the time because we weren't together back right. then. I didn't know him when I when he first moved to San Diego. But I remember him talking about it. And I remember seeing some stuff on the news. I don't remember seeing stuff about Amber Dubois. I remember seeing stuff about Chelsea King. Yeah. And they still have um, a run, I think, that memorializes her and a couple of other little things that have been done in her yeah. honor. I think there's a scholarship or something like that at Rancho Bernardo High School. Mm. So, um yeah, very, very sad cases. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about this case or something that you want to draw our attention to, um, please shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. Darcy, social media? Yeah, we're at the BFD Podcast on Instagram, so we'll post pictures and all that stuff uh, there, too. Of these two beautiful young women. Yeah. Um, so if you have an opportunity, I think they both have websites. You can do some more... Um, research and find out you know how you can help out with the search mm -hmm. efforts that um amber dubois mom participates in or you could participate in the fundraiser if you're in san diego for chelsea king as well yeah. um the the ongoing run i think it's a run yeah it's a holiday run or something of that nature for her all right folks please join us again next week when we talk more about weird wacky and wild cases good night podcast peeps stay safe keep it real and always live your very best life bye, bye.